Welcome to the Vox Community Podcast. You can learn more about Vox Community at voxoc.com. Join us on Sunday mornings at El Dorado High School in the Performing Arts Center at 9 and 11 a.m. All right. Good morning. We okay? Okay. Excellent. Good morning. Uh, oh, it's Dallas today. Oh, it's Dallas today. Uh, my name is Mike. I want to welcome you uh, to our community. We are named Vox, which is Latin for voice. Uh, and um, if you are new with us, you can find out more about our community. If you go to voxoc.com, you can uh, give us information there. You can read up uh, on what we're about and, uh, and how to get more involved. If you are between the ages of 18 and 26, we have something coming up. Not this, this Friday? Yeah, it's this Friday. Called a New to Vox Dinner for college-age-ish, young adult-ish uh, type folks. Good morning, Jen. Great to see you. This is for you, 18 to 26. This is an announcement for you. Uh, it's over at my house, um, and it is an opportunity to get to know each other, so you can sign up on our website for that. We are a community that was uh, launched out of a podcast uh, last May that is built around three central convictions that we talk about all the time. Uh, number one, we believe the role of the church in society is to love and serve the world, not to sit in judgment of it. We think the church should be ruthless in reaching out to the next generation and capturing hearts and minds of the next generation. And then thirdly, we believe the church should be the safest place to talk about anything and everything. And, um, and so we embody these convictions in a, in a bunch of different ways, but one of them is that we tell stories, and the stories we tell aren't always the pretty red bow stories. And uh, we have... For uh, a crew of us this morning, this morning is incredibly, incredibly significant. Uh, Izzy Ray is not here, and so we've invited a friend of ours uh, to come and to lead worship. And it's incredibly significant that uh, he accepted and his wife is with him. Um, uh, My friend Caleb and I have worked and served in churches in Orange County for years, and um, Almost two years ago or so, um, his life and their life together and their ministry life just crashed and burned, and it has been a slow, slow rebuild. And uh, this morning is, uh, for them, one of the first times they're sharing a bit of that journey publicly and the first time that Caleb is leading worship uh, in a church community like this. And so um, it's a big deal. For those of us who've been walking and, and praying and um, journeying with them. So, um, so we're going to start with story, then Caleb's going to lead, and then we'll do kind of what we do. But I want to introduce you to Caleb and Heather Clements. Come on out, guys. Say hello. So Caleb and Heather, this is 9 a.m. Box. They're the best, they're the better looking service of the two we got, so there's no question about that. Um, why don't you share a little bit about the last couple of years, <laughs> however much you'd like to. Um, hi everybody, thanks for having us, good to be here. I'm um, Caleb, this is my wife Heather, and um, we, I was a pastor, worship pastor for about 15 years at various churches in Orange County, loved it. Um, Saw some amazing things happening. Uh, Throughout that time, uh, there was was always something that wasn't quite right with me. 
<laughs> some would say. Now, there was always sort of this, this unresolved conflict in me. Part of it was faith. A lot of it was uh, in the midst of leading massive churches, uh, I often felt like I wasn't being true to myself and to who God made me to be. And over time, that, that began to wear on me more and more. And that coupled with the fact there's this concept in Scripture of being rooted and built up. And in my teens, I spent a lot of time developing myself spiritually, reading the Bible, praying, pursuing God. And as I became a professional, as what often happens, I, I sort of let a lot of that go. And it was more for what I was doing. So I was studying for what I was doing or praying right before I needed God's help with something. And when you take on more and more leadership, more and more spiritual weight, if your foundation isn't strong, you're going to crash. And about a year and a half ago, I crashed. And I crashed big time in a way that, that really um, hurt my wife, uh, really hurt our marriage, and our church at the time. And, uh, you know, I got to this place where some of my friends would say I was unrecognizable, yet I was standing in front of people leading worship. And finally, I got to a place where I got the courage uh, to confess uh, to my wife, to confess to our pastor at the time. I was desperate to get well. I was desperate to, to reclaim honesty and, and find healing. And that journey started about a year and a half ago, and it's been brutal. <laughs> but it's been brutal, but it's been incredibly rewarding. And that would be sort of the story in a nutshell. Heather, what was the last year and a half? Right? No big deal. <laughs> um, just kidding. Um, I think, uh, you know, we all have experienced pain in our life. And um, as a lifetime Christian, um, my dad was a pastor, my grandpa was a pastor, um, I thought I was... Um, had experienced pain, and then when I experienced pain, not only in my family, but then also um, from the church, who I had also pledged my allegiance to, I realized that um, my hope is built on nothing less but Jesus' blood. That's it. And so when we put our faith and our trust in people and in things, um, it doesn't work. What What is important is Christ alone. And so uh, this year and a half, um, has become even more clear um, that uh, no matter our journey, whether it's sunshine and roses or whether um, the pain is deep and unimaginable, Christ is with us. Emmanuel, God is with us, and he will sustain us. Um, we had some really dark days. I had some dark days. Um, and they were dark, and they kind of felt terrible and hopeless, but I knew deep down in my soul that I wasn't without hope. Um, and that was because, um, because uh, God is with us. And so I think um, today, if I could leave you with something as part of our story, is that you aren't without hope that Christ is with you, pursuing you, right next to you. And um, um, that, that um, you could see some girl on a stage that went through the valley of the shadow of death, it felt like just really terrible, um, that he will lead you beside quiet waters and restore your soul and um, continue to walk with you. Um, and he is walking with us and um, uh, to um, better places. So over the last year and a half of the walk of repentance, 
Yeah. The walk of therapy, the walk of restoration of marriage and reestablishment of trust, I mean, all those things, would have been a couple of things that were either surprises along the way um, or a couple of things that were learned along the way that change now what, this, what being on a stage feels like. Uh, it couldn't be more different, you know, standing up here. Um, I think there's, there's so much that we, we have learned. I've, I've learned so much through Heather uh, what grace actually is, what grace actually looks like, and um, what love actually looks like. It's been powerful the way that Heather um, has, has stuck with me, has um, given me strength, and the fact that she's standing with me this morning is powerful. And um, I, I've learned that sin is real. Um, you know, we, we hear that and, and we experience that, but if, if sin is not dealt with, over time it does grow, and um, it gets more, more and more difficult to confess and to come out of hiding, and that action is one of the most difficult things. Um, there's actually, this is the first time in my life that I experienced uh, spiritual warfare, which I'd heard talked about, always felt a bit distant to me, but, but the act of coming out of hiding was brutal and, and really difficult, but worth it. Um, I've learned that God can heal anything, um, any, any amount of brokenness. Um, I think for me as a pastor, as a worship leader, um, it was really difficult walking back into church. We took a few months off, um, and when we walked back into church, there was so much I didn't uh, want to see or do. Um, there was so much that I regretted about how I used to lead people in worship, if like I'm what? honest. That's a huge statement. Like what? Um, well, I'm just saying, yeah. I mean, this is somebody that led uh, worship for thousands of people, and you regret some of the way. I mean, that's just yeah. a big deal. Yeah, I mean, I regret towing the line. <laughs> you know, there was things that we were brought up in. There were songs that we, that we sang that I didn't, I don't know that I believed the words that I was singing myself or asking thousands of people to sing, if I'm honest. Um, so now there's certain songs I probably just won't sing until that's been true in my life, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, there was just a lot of, uh, a lot of BS, honestly. <laughs> Can I say that? Yeah, yeah, it stands okay. for bologna sandwiches. Yeah, That's there was, what that stands, yeah. stands for. I mean, yeah. There was a lot of stuff we did, and we didn't really know why we did it. Yes. And so when I walked back into a church with Heather in the most desperate place we had been in our lives, I remember saying, the last thing I need is some dumb worship leader to tell me to get up and smile and jump up and down. And, you know, <laughs> really, I would have probably flipped him off and walked out. And, uh, but at the same time, I still had this deep That's right. desire to encounter God. And walking in that day, I remember this day, we walked into a church, and, uh, you know, just kind of walking in, just nervous, not really thrilled to be there. And I remember the worship starting, and so much of it was identity for me, leading worship, the worship culture. Um, and the last thing I wanted to do was stand and sing. But I felt like God was saying, at least stand up. Just stand up, you know? You don't have to sing. You don't need to smile. You don't need to raise your hands. You don't need to do it. But just stand up. And for me, the act of just standing put myself in a posture where I could receive, you know? I certainly wasn't going to pretend, but I felt like I learned throughout this journey, I learned the balance and the art of pursuing without pretending, 
which was a big, big deal for me to live honestly. And that's sort of my thing now, is like, I'm going to be me, I'm going to be honest, I'm going to pursue God in my way, but I'm not going to pretend, and it's not going to be fake. I love that. Yeah. So what we're going to do, it, here you go, I'll take that. Um, so it's a big deal uh, for, for those of us that have been with them, and, and um, we are a church firmly uh, rooted in the understanding that God is the God of second, third, fourth, an infinite number of chances. And, um, and so we're, we're going to be led this morning uh, by Caleb. And uh, I want to pray for us uh, as we enter into that time. Um, uh, and, and, you know, our thought, of course, is that uh, for some of us, this is relevant stuff. Uh, that, that hiding in the darkness is the, is the easiest space to find ourselves in. And there's something so powerful about speaking the truth of what's actually going on. So let me pray, and then we will lead together. Father, we bless your name, and we are very grateful that um, 50 days after Peter denied you uh, publicly three times, he was preaching a sermon, uh, that after Paul had been uh, murdering Christians, you had placed him in a position of leadership and and as the author of two-thirds of the New Testament, that as David, as a man after your own heart, uh, was fallen and frail, yet he penned the worship manual for the church. Um, we're grateful that our failures aren't final. And, uh, and so, God, we, we embrace uh, the grace that is um, given to us in Jesus of Nazareth. And we're grateful for that. In Jesus' name, amen. We are, um, we're big fans of uh, sinners and skeptics and doubters and questioners, and uh, you seem to be taking advantage of our fanship uh, by texting in the most intricate and ridiculous questions in the history of the world. Um, so, so every week we, we try to get to as many questions as we can from the previous week, and here's the number if you want to take a picture of that or enter that into your phone. Um, this is, uh, this is the, kind of one of the funnest parts for me. I don't spend a lot of time prepping these, um, so they're always a bit of a shock uh, when they come up. All right, first one, what is the maximum velocity of an unladen swallow? That's from uh, Monty Python and Holy Grail, anybody? Anybody? And then, and, then, and then what's the answer? What do you mean? An African or European swallow? That's the right answer to that, okay? Perfect. Mike, do you believe in life on other planets? I believe that men are from Mars and women are from Venus. No, um, uh, I believe in the possibility of life on other planets. Um, I'm a big fan of the National Enquirer, and they say there's life on other planets, and so I take that, and the internet says it, so it must be true. Um, no, I, I'm, I'm open in this vast, magnificent universe that God has created, that other forms of life have been created. I have no... If we found out that there were other species, that wouldn't do a thing other than, okay. So, so when it says every tongue, tribe, and nation, there are going to be some really weird tongue, tribes, and nations kind of in the new creation. So I have no issue with that being a possibility. Next. If God already knows who is going to accept him, what is our purpose here on this earth? Why are we here instead of just being taken up into heaven? Well, that's a great question. Well, a couple of thoughts first thought is that God is looking always. 
His, so, so in Genesis 1, God creates hu- human beings, correct? And, and what's, what does he tell them to do? You remember? What does he tell them to do? First command of the Bible is what? Have sex. And then second command of the Bible? Fill the earth, subdue the earth, rule over the earth. And again, this doesn't mean like benevolent dictatorship. This is stewardship and service. Could God have filled the earth? Could God have ruled over the earth better than human persons? Of course. But our image bearing is tied to the cooperative participation God wants. Out of the overflow of who God is, God creates faint reflections of what he's like. So the reason we're not zapped into heaven is because we now become bearers of what we ourselves have received. Part of the way God still reveals God's self to the world is through his people. Hence the images that we are the body of Christ. And so the reason he doesn't zap us up is because we've got work to do. There's this very famous passage in Ephesians. We have been saved by grace through faith, not of ourselves, not by works so that no one can boast. It is the gift of God. And then there's this verse that we always cut off. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do work, which God himself planned in advance for us to do. So your being here isn't just biding time until new creation. Your being here is to partner with God in the work that God is doing in its renewal. Ooh, great question. Next. You previously touched upon the crazy Old Testament rules and stated something like God worked within the cultural context of that day, and how the laws were a step up from cultural practices, yet the truest and fullest expression of the heart of God was in Jesus Christ. Next. It seems you alluded to those laws not really being from God, yet the scriptures clearly state that God said before those laws. So, all caps, it calls into question divine inspiration of the scriptures. How do we, how do you discern what God really said versus what people think he said? Dang. First of all, don't ever quote my words back at me, okay? Don't ever do that. Secondly, that is a fantastic question. And absolutely, I've said, because the scriptures teach, that the prior revelations, prior to Jesus of Nazareth, were not the fullest and truest picture of God's inner character. That Jesus is the only exact representation of God's being. Now, here's the important point, though. That doesn't mean that God didn't say the things previously. It's just that those things aren't the fullness of the revelation when you compare it to the fullness of the revelation we have in Jesus. Now, the word for this is incarnation. In other words, God, when God took on human flesh, God did it in a specific time, in a specific place, bless you, with a, with a specific language, God did it, God did it in, with specific clothing, right? There was a specificity to Jesus that we have to honor in order to understand him. I'm just saying that same specificity applies to the text too. That when God speaks, he speaks in ways that we can understand. So when God speaks to me, he doesn't speak Hebrew, he speaks English. Now, is that because God speaks English and that's his favorite language? Well, no. But it's the way I understand when God speaks. So God is always, as a good missionary, God always speaks in the cultural context that makes sense. That, that's not to say it's not true of God speaking. It just means to say that according to the scriptures, all prior revelations were partial and not as full compared to the full revelation of God and Christ. Hope that helps. Next. You guys kill me. 
A few weeks ago, we talked about the kingdom coming. I know as Christians, we should. And everyone was excited about this. But when I think of the kingdom coming, I get scared and even resistant to wanting it. To me, it means that I die and my husband and I never get to see each other again. Next. What if I don't want the kingdom to come? Am I missing the point? No, I think you're embodying the heart of God. I mean, the scriptures clearly state God delays his coming because he does not want anyone to perish. So for you to not welcome the idea, if that's the theology you hold, that we'll be eternally separated forever, I think you'd be far more callous if you welcomed it in that context. Correct? The one piece I'd add is simply this. As we're going to see, it's very easy when we talk about hell and judgment to try to look for the fine print of contract and not trust in the character of Jesus of Nazareth. So, is it possible to want Jesus' will to be done on earth as it is in heaven while at the same time completely bummed at the possibility that my husband and I might exist forever separately? Yes, of course that is. How callous would you be if you were just like, no, he's not that great. Jesus is far better. And, and, and Jesus is far better, but still, right? So be free from the, the guilt or the shame that says, I have to be so pumped for this. You can be pumped for this and still grieve and be anxious and resistant to the idea of how this thing ends up. Any more? Oh my goodness, how do you connect God's great love for us through purging out evil, through the great flood? Isn't that funny? One of the children's stories that's always read to children is Noah and the Ark, the genocide of humanity. <laughs> right? I mean, and I always want to, you know, you always have the nice rainbow, and here's the Ark, and I always want to put in a bunch of dead people floating. <laughs> and just say, hey kids, just so you know. All right, now that's worthy of a podcast. So, yeah, you're not going to get that today. How can God, because it says God grieves over creating his image bearers. That's worthy of a podcast. That's excellent. Please tell me there's no more. Fantastic. All right. We, you guys, and, there, and, there, and these were the short ones. There were a couple of long ones. My goodness. All right. So I love this. So we're, we're, we're in the middle of talking about judgment. Just a reminder for context. We've been going over, Jen, you remember this, we've been going over John 3.16 like since September or October, and we're stuck on shall not perish. For God so loved the world, he gave his one only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish. So we've been talking a lot about what does it mean to perish. We've been framing the perish conversation in the difference between two diagrams. Here's the first one. This is the standard biblical story. We live on earth. We die, we face judgment, we spend forever in heaven, or we spend forever in hell. That's the standard evangelical Christian story. The biblical story is a bit different. God creates the heavens and the earth. That there was angelic and creaturely rebellion, and so there was some sort of fracture between the heavens and the earth. And that judgment is coming in order to reconcile heaven and earth. In other words, hell is not the counterpart of heaven in the biblical story. Earth is the counterpart of heaven in the biblical story. And, and so we're asking a bunch of questions about judgment. Last week we were like, well, why does God judge? And we actually were trying to make the upside down case that it's, it's actually good news that God is judging. 
for a bunch of reasons that you can listen to if you'd like to. Today we want to talk about the who of judgment. Oh, let's go to the book of Matthew. If you have a Bible, great. If not, we'll put it up on the screens. This is going to raise a whole bunch of questions. So I'm going to be absent next week. We'll let Andy try. Matthew chapter 8. Who does God judge? Yeah, yeah, I mean, of course the answer is everybody, but there, there's this interesting zing in the ministry of Jesus that I just want to make sure we capture. And this, by the way, this is the most unoriginal teaching in the history of the world. I'm going to read 12 different passages to make the point. There's no, there's no better way than to just over, so over make this point. About 15 minutes from now, you will be dozing off, saying, yeah, we got it. And then there'll be 15 more minutes of, yeah, I don't think you got it yet. So, Matthew chapter 8, verse 5. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him looking for help. Now, we've talked about centurions, right? Romans were considered terrorists in Jesus' day. They, they were crucifying Jews. They were conscripting forced labor. They were committing acts of idolatry by forcing the Jewish nation to pay tribute to Caesar. I mean, terrorist is the right word. This wasn't an occupying force. This was, these were terrorists. And not only was this guy not, not Jewish, he was Roman. He was a Roman soldier, and a centurion was a commander. So he's got like four strikes against him. And centurions never ask for help. So it's odd that a guy like this would approach Jesus, and then we read why. why? Verse 6, Lord, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Verse 7, and I love just Jesus. Shall I come and heal him? As if that were no big thing. But culturally, for Jesus to go into the centurion's house would have been a huge scandal. But Jesus, ah, what's, what's religious propriety when someone's suffering? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not have, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word from here and my servant will be healed. I myself am a man under authority. I know how authority works, in other words. I have soldiers under me, and I tell this one, go, and he goes, and this one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. In other words, the man saying to Jesus, Jesus, I, I give orders, and things obey. I see you doing that with disease. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to the Jews following him, truly, I've not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. Now, how stoked are you? If you're an Israelite, not so much, correct? The covenant community, the Torah-keeping community, the, the light to the Gentiles. Jesus finds this guy who we find out later was a bit of a God-fear in New Testament terms. He had an openness to the worship of the God of Israel, but still would have been considered a terrorist by many. And Jesus looks at him and says, now that's what I'm talking about. Come on. And then Jesus uses the, the faith of this Gentile, this non-Jew, as a picture of what will happen when judgment comes. Oh, Nelly. Remember Keith Jackson, anybody? Rose Bowl? Uh, okay, nothing. Um, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west 
East, I believe, was Babylon. West was Rome. I believe, Matt, I may have reversed that. Many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with who? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom, the Jews, at least some Jews, will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and what? And gnashing of teeth. Hold on a second. So Jesus comes across a terrorist soldier who exhibits such great faith. Jesus says, hey, just so you know, when judgment comes, we're going to have lots of these guys showing up. And a lot of the folks that thought they were insiders will actually be put outside where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The gnashing of teeth, we think, was an expression either of extreme anguish or, I prefer, extreme anger, resentment. Flip over, if you would, to Matthew chapter uh, 7. See, Jesus, and here's, just, here's the big point that I'm going to overmake. When Jesus teaches about judgment, the word surprise is the word that's always used to characterize his teaching about it. In other words, it's not a straight line. It's not a straight moral calculus from, oh, here are all the polished and religious people together with God, and here are all the sinners burning in hellfire forever. No, when Jesus taught about judgment, the one consistent theme in his teaching is it's surprising. That it's surprising. So let's look at some surprises. Verse 21, Matthew 7. Not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that judgment day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform miracles? And I will say to you, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Oh, okay. Don't you think if you were casting out demons in the name of Jesus, doing miracles in the name of Jesus, and prophesying in the name of Jesus, that somehow you'd gotten in with Jesus, don't you think? And yet, what's the curveball? I never knew you. So this is fun. Let's go to Luke chapter 13. Not only is it surprising, but it's a reversal. In other words, the people that were thought to be blessed on earth aren't the blessed ones when judgment comes. And the people that were thought to be not blessed on earth are the people that turn out to be blessed when judgment comes. So, beautiful examples here. Luke chapter 13. Oh, it's going to get worse. Then Jesus, verse 22 went through the towns and villages. There are, so, there are so many passages. At one point, I think I had almost 50 passages written down to make these points. The hardest thing was to try to narrow them down. Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? Now, we hear saved, and we think life in heaven. Saved for Jesus means something a bit different, right? So we can have that conversation in a bit. But notice what Jesus says. Make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter it and will not be able to. 
Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you came from. Then you will say, we ate and drank with you and you taught in our streets. Like these are, these are the people seeing Jesus and hearing his voice and hearing his teaching. And Jesus is saying, listen, some of you will play that card, but I don't know you. You will say, we ate and drank with you and, and you taught in our streets, but he will reply, I don't know where you come from. Away from me, you evildoers. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves will be thrown out. Who's he talking to here? Who's he talking to? Who's he talking to? Who's he talking to? Not specific. He'll get to the Pharisees in a second. He's talking to Jews, correct? The covenant people of God who were sure simply in virtue of their birth that they were in. Oh, man. People will come from the east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first and the first who will be last. My son quotes this verse whenever I beat him in uh, video games. <laughs> but Jesus usually... usually puts this verse in context of judgment. Who is the who of judgment? Well, it turns out to be God's people first and foremost. And that judgment is characterized by two words, surprise and reversal. We're surprised because what we thought were the insiders turn out to be outsiders, and what we thought were outsiders turn out to be insiders. So you've got Luke chapter 16. This is a very famous parable. So fun, right? Luke 16, verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. Now, if he's dressed in purple, that little detail means he's probably a, a ruler so he could be jabbing at one of the Herods right here who has five brothers, which would be interesting. We don't know that for sure. At the gate of the rich man was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Now, in Jewish culture, who's blessed between the two men? Who's blessed? Rich. Rich was proof of blessing, according to some. Poverty was proof of cursing. God's curse according to some. So Jesus is just setting us up right here. Even the dogs came and licked the poor man's sores. Thanks for that detail. The time came when the beggar died and the, air, the angels carried him to whose side? So this is the feast that Jesus is always talking about. The rich man also died and he was buried in Hades, the realm of the dead. All right, so instantly you're like, oh, hold on a second. The poor guy is with Abraham, the dream of every Jew, and the rich guy is in Hades. Oh, that's interesting. In Hades, where the rich man was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus at his side. 
So he called on him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. Now we're going to talk about this passage because a lot of people think this is some play-by-play description of hell. This is not a play-by-play description of hell. Okay, Jesus is trading on stock imagery here to make a point about reversals. We'll get to that another time. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you can, cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. Now, to the standard of Jewish imagination, that would be pretty offensive, correct? Oh, remember when Jesus says, blessed are the poor and woe to the rich? Well, this is what this looks like when you play it out. See, we don't take Jesus seriously on this stuff, but Jesus was really, see, you think Old Testament's God of wrath and New Testament's God of grace, and you're like, no, no, Jesus had, Jesus had a bit of fire to him. But where was the fire directed? At the covenant people. That's the big point. It's a surprise when judgment comes, because people will be there you weren't expecting. It's a reversal in that the people we think were the blessed ones weren't always the real blessed ones, and the people we thought were the cursed ones weren't always the real cursed ones. And then lastly, judgment is always directed at those who bear the name of God first. Flip over to Matthew 23. Let's look at Pharisees. Love them. Now, some of you are not going to like this statement. But when you look at evangelical Christianity in America, the, the closest analog to that in ancient Judaism was Phariseeism. Pharisees were zealous for converts. They were people of Scripture. They were memorizers of their Bible, faithful attenders at synagogue. Put, it, put an absolute emphasis on appearance. I mean, and I, I'm, not, I'm not speaking of any of of you. I'm just saying in general, when you look at different faith expressions of Christianity and trace them back and look for what the different faith expressions of Judaism in Jesus' day, we're most like Pharisees as a general rule, which for me means the critiques of Pharisees that Jesus gives have to be the ones I take most seriously. So, And Jesus has so much to say to these folks. Matthew 23, verse 13. Woe to you. So when he's he's doing woe, okay, uh, that is is the anticipation of cursing, of of some sort of judgment uh, about to come upon them, and Jesus is trying to wake them up. Woe to you, teachers of the law, And Pharisees, you hypocrites, you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those who are trying to enter, enter. I totally butchered that. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to, period. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, 
And when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of what? A child of hell as you are. Oh my goodness! Jesus talks about hell more than any other person in the scriptures. And guess who he talks about hell to most? All the Pharisees. Dang. Verse 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices. You tithe your salt. Or he gives examples, mint, dill, and cumin. But I like salt better. But, so you're observant in the most minute thing, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. If you're serious, you should have done the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat from your drink because it's an unclean animal, but you swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then outside will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of bones of the dead and everything unclean. Oh my goodness. And then he kicks it up a notch. Verse 33, you snakes. You children of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Whoa! All right, let's pray. Let's close in prayer. What do you think of that? What do you think of that? If someone's talking, I bless you, and I cannot hear you. Don't feel safe? Yes, scary? Yeah? You know, to me, I think a couple of things. First, it's a surprise, and and there are so many more verses. I mean, Jesus tells wedding banquet parables that have a surprise reversal, where the invited guests have lame excuses, and so God compels all those outside to come in. Or he tells another wedding parable about about, um, how... Um, oh, and Matthew, he, uh, about how the king actually throws somebody out of his party because he didn't have the right clothes. And welcome. I mean, it's just, it's absolutely crazy. And, and, and you realize that Jesus stands in the great prophetic tradition of the Old Testament. God kept sending prophets to who? To Israel. So when, when Jesus shows up in the book of Revelation and he is examining the churches that were real flesh and blood churches, He has stuff to say. (laughs) To each one of them, he says, I know your deeds. And he critiques them. So, a couple of points for us. First point. If you're here and you hate the hypocrisy of the church, have I got good news for you? Jesus does too. Jesus does too. Religion is a lousy place to hide from God. And so please, when we talk about following Jesus, we're not talking about being religious or hiding behind religious appearances. Jesus is so clear. Religious performance, religious exercise, none of that gets us into his kingdom. Deserving has no place in his kingdom. Saying yes to an invitation in faith, well, that's what we're talking about. 
So if you just can't stand the hypocrisy of the church and you wonder about the child molesters and the embezzlers and, 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 and like, is God gonna, does God hate this stuff as much as we do? Oh, he hates it more. He hates it more. But for me, here's what this does for me. When we talk about judgment and hell, I'm usually thinking about its application to other people right? And I think what Jesus does that's so brilliant is he says, I'll take care of the other people. Let's talk about you, right? So you have all kinds of warnings. Go ahead and, and yes? <laughs> Hello? No, not Leslie. No, not Leslie yet. Not Leslie yet. I think Romans. Oh, no, go to the first Romans. That was it, Bob. You're on fire. Oh, was that the first? Romans 14 was the first one? All right, then go left. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will make them stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. Next. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Why do you treat them with contempt? For we all will stand before God's judgment seat. Next. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Next. Paul says, I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Now, this is the, you want to know why this matters to us? Here it is. Judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Or one more. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church, Paul says. Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Woo! So, let's work, let's work on this together, shall we? For just a few moments. First, judgment is good news. Remember we talked about the bondage of creation, the darkness of humanity, the brutality of history, the deception of appearances. All of that needs light shed upon it. The earth is soaked in blood, and there must be justice. And for those of us who shelter in Messiah Jesus, the purification of sin is much like a parent trying to get rid of all the cancer in their child. It is a zeal for goodness and blessing. It is not punishment and anger. But who is this applied to first? Well, when God's people, though those who bore his name in Israel were people that were adding to the darkness instead of bringing light to the darkness, God sent them prophets who would stand in judgment over them. When the Jews of Jesus' day had so lost the plot and Jesus shows up, 
It's fascinating how Jesus talks to people who are outside the covenant community or who are broken on the inside of it versus how he talks to people who are assured in their own self-righteousness that they're insiders. Just, just read the difference. That day, Jesus says, will be a day of surprise. It'll be a day of reversal. And most importantly, that the words that are spoken in the scriptures are to be spoken to those who bear the name of Jesus first. Does God judge it? Well, sure. Yes. The whole earth must be renewed. Therefore, the whole thing has to undergo the purification of judgment. Got it. But I found in my own heart, and I find in evangelical Christianity, a wonderful cottage industry that has sprung up that sits in radical, ruthless, and condemning judgment over the world. That announces with surety who's going to hell and who's going to heaven. In defiance of Jesus' clear teaching that no such pronouncements should ever be made. And that if we are ever going to talk about judgment, let us not wonder about the fate of those who've never heard, I trust Jesus with them. What about the good Muslims or the good Buddhists? I trust Jesus with them. What about my kid or what about I trust Jesus with them? The words that Jesus would speak where Jesus on the earth would be directed at his church. Do you understand this? And when Jesus showed up and he wanted to clear out a temple, it wasn't the Roman temples that he went and turned over tables in. It was the temple that his father had established that had become corrupt. And so for me, there is such a holy humility that comes with this. In the middle of our unbelievably polarized and contemptuous culture, people will ask me, hey, why do you keep saying you're the biggest sinner in the room? Well, that's my way of reminding myself that the, I've got a two by four and everyone else has a speck of dust when it comes to how big my sin is compared to yours. And if a whole community decided to take Jesus' word seriously and focus on our becoming holy and not those who have not said yes to Jesus, maybe we'd have a bit more power and authority to speak on cultural issues. As it is, we shelter the same way the Jews did. Maybe not in our ethnicity, but well, I prayed a prayer when I was six. Well, I was baptized when I was 12. Oh, my parents were this. I go to church on Christmas. Sheltering in religious performance is different from sheltering in Jesus. So the word for us, the good news for us, is simply this. We don't have to spend any energy judging the world. Now, judgment is different than discernment. We're called to discern all over the place. And here's the difference. Judgment is the condemnation of people. Discernment is the separation of things, of actions, of words, of behaviors, but not hearts. I can't read a heart. But I can say, yep, that's congruent with kingdom life. That's not, Paul does this all the time. Honesty, that's congruent. Generosity, that's congruent. Selfishness, not congruent. Yeah, so we discern. But I've just found in my heart and in the heart of so many of us, 
the temptation to condemn. Fire up, Leslie. Fire him up. We'll end with this. I'm astounded at the arrogance of theologians who seem to think that we are authorized in our capacity as Christians to inform the rest of the world about who is to be vindicated and who is to be condemned at the last judgment. I find this way of thinking among Christians astonishing. That'd be a good title for a book. In view of the warnings of Jesus against these kinds of judgments which claim to preempt the final judgment of God. It would be tedious to repeat against, again the innumerable warnings of Jesus in this matter, his repeated statements that the last day will be a day of surprises, of reversals, and astonishment. Woo! So, brothers and sisters, what should we do in response? What do we always do in response? What do we always do? We come to the table. Why? This is the picture of the extent to which God will go to bear the judgment himself. This is one of the ways that we shelter in Messiah Jesus. We receive him again and again and again and again. This isn't magic. This isn't one of those things that, well, if I just take this bread and cup every week, I'm good. That's not how, none of it works that way. But for those of us who are following this Jesus, for those of us who are curious about this Jesus, for those of us who are interested about this Jesus, this is one of the ways we open ourselves up to remind ourselves that Jesus has provided a way to be reconciled to him. And so we take the bread and the cup as a picture of the death that he died, but just as importantly, if not more so, his current reality and the expectation that he comes again. And that, in anticipation of his coming, we forsake our pronouncements about how exactly that's going to go down. Because our trust isn't in the fine print and our trust isn't in our, our certitude. Our trust is in the character and goodness of our Messiah Jesus. So we're going to open up the tables, as always. For those of you anticipating gluten-free new creation, Gluten-free tables over there. Um, all are welcome at the table. So we, we invite you to come. There are always people there who look you in the eye who will say this is the body and this is the blood. So we invite you and encourage you to take that in remembrance and anticipation. For those of you that uh, choose to worship financially, uh, we have participation boxes at both doors. The folks that hand out the elements will be up here to pray for you. Um, and then we're going to, we're going to, as we're participating and responding, we're going to sing together. So let me pray for us. And uh, <laughs> I look forward to your questions next week. Oh. So Lord Jesus, thank you for your grace and your mercy. God, you know you know the stories that sit in this room. And Father, what is so fascinating to me is that you continually war against the temptation that we have to, towards self-righteousness. And Father, we want to be humbled again and astonished again at the grace that while we were far away, you drew near. While we were 
lost in the dark, you were seeking relentlessly after us, that you came to our rescue when we needed you most. And so God, we take the bread and the cup to say thank you, to place ourselves again in your hands, to offer ourselves in service. And so receive us, Father, in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Brothers and sisters, would you stand? Hello, you made it. Um, uh, if, you, if you're new, again, just find out more about us, voxoc.com. If you're 18 to 26, party at my place Friday, party. It's more like board games and pizza. I, I don't know what it is. Due to Vox Dinner, though, for the, you, those of you in that age range, and Jennifer. Um, I, uh, I want to pray just our blessing over us as we go this morning. Again, we go not as um, folks who have been to church, but as folks who are an expression of God's and proof of God's intention to renew all things. And um, so we're healed to be healers. We're comforted to be comforters. We're told truth to be truth tellers. And so um, to that end, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord shine his face upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance to you. And in these days, may he give you peace. Amen and amen. God bless you. Say hello to somebody as you leave. See you later. Have a good day. Remember judgment. It gets really good next week. You're getting to hell. Thanks for listening to the Vox Community Podcast. Participate in the Vox Community at voxoc.com participate.